Hi, and welcome to The Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Leslie Block and Zoe Bisbing, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two, here to help you help your children fully bloom. Welcome back to the Full Bloom Podcast. This is episode number 37. This episode of the Full Bloom Podcast is brought to you by our ABC Guide to Body Positive Parenting. After interviewing dozens of experts for our podcast, we wanted to find a way to bring together the most critical concepts we learned to help foster emotional wellness, self-esteem, and positive body image in our children. Our A to Z guide is the result, an e-resource packed full of 25 PDFs detailing essential topics in body positive parenting. We've gathered together insights from research and our interviews with clinicians, researchers, and activists, combined with additional resources on each and every topic to serve as a guide for parents and providers. It's available for purchase now on our website, fullbloomproject.com slash ABC. And a quick reminder that this podcast is for general informational and education purposes only and is not intended for and shouldn't replace advice from a medical professional. So I'm really excited about today's guest, Dr. Deb Burgard. I've been waiting a while to speak with her. Me too. I was introduced to her through the Academy um, for Eating Disorders and her presence at a lot of the breakout sessions and her questions primarily that always, always, always came from a health at every size place and continued to push the academy further into really looking at how to be weight inclusive. That's right. And just a little bit about her before we get started. She's a psychologist and activist from the San Francisco Bay Area. And she too specializes in body image and eating disorders, weight stigma, and relationships. As Leslie mentioned, she's one of the founders of the Health at Every Size model, the original bodypositive.com website, and the Show Me the Data listserv, building communities where people can find each other and resources to resist weight stigma, especially in medical and psychological treatment. So our conversation today is really going to walk you through her process of founding Health at Every Size, the details of why it's important for parents to know how to incorporate it into the family. What else did we talk with her about? Well, we got her to tell us a little bit more about uh, her strong opinions about the Weight Watchers recent Curbo app for children, which has gotten us all sort of up in arms. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Kerbo, WW, formerly known as Weight Watchers, partnered with an app called Kerbo a couple of months ago, which is a program uh, targeting young people ages 8 to 17 who are looking to make, quote, lifestyle changes. Uh, although Kerbo and WW deny that uh, this is a diet or a weight loss plan, the success stories and kind of testimonials that they feature on their website are all very much weight loss 
success stories. And so many people, Deb, Leslie, and I included, kind of members of the eating disorder community, eating disorder treatment community, have been really concerned and uh, if not enraged about this new attempt to uh, suck very young people into the diet cycle. And I hope everyone listening will agree of reminding us that health at every size, while it's not entirely the solution to the problems so many of our kids and all of us as humans may face, but that it really does help us identify accurately where the actual problems are. Welcome, Deb, to the Full Bloom podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for making some time to talk to us and our listeners. And for those who don't know who you are, can you tell us about who you are and what brought you to the work that you do? Yeah, so I am a psychologist. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I have been working on just approaches to people's health that are not weight-based uh, for most of my career. So we started talking about this stuff in the early 1980s, <laughs> believe it or not. And we were actually building on the work of people who were even starting as activists in the 70s and earlier. So I have had one foot in the world of activism and one foot in the world of eating disorder specialty treatment. And those experiences have really shaped the way I think about things. So I sort of started with with physical activity kinds of interventions. And um, then when I became a psychologist, you know, looking at kind of the way that all these aspects of health kind of intertwine and how they're really in a context, a larger context of our culture and a lot of things that impact our well-being that are kind of outside the medical view and all those things together. My, my excitement is really in pulling all that together and kind of thinking about that big picture and sort of what are the implications for us on an individual level of that big picture. We're, we're so with you. And one of our missions at the Full Bloom Project through our podcast is to support health at every size for the whole family. And we talk a lot about it on the podcast, but seeing as you are one of the founders of the Health at Every Size movement, we feel particularly excited to learn from you what you want all parents to know about Health at Every Size. Well, I think one of the things that's true about parenting right now that a lot of people may not really think about is how much oppression there is facing parents. <laughs> I mean, there's like people getting their kids taken away from them, you know, for their kids having a particular body size. And this is just scary, scary stuff. And it's also operating in a much more kind of less obvious way all the time. I think parents are really concerned about other people's perceptions of their child's mm -hmm. uh, well-being based on their child's body size. And, you know, so it just is a whole new layer of policing, you know, kind of going on. And I think, you know, the health at every size model is really saying that the approaches to health that we've had um, in the past and in the present that 
focus on changing everybody's body size into one basic body size, they don't really comport with biology, <laughs> you know? And well said. You know, they, they're, they're just not an evidence-based approach. And so, you know, when we started doing this work way back when, a lot of us were sort of, some of us were activists, some of us were healthcare providers, but we were all kind of looking at this kind of dominant idea that if you make everybody the same size, they'll have the same health and how wrong it was and how much it was sort of a placeholder and even like a block to figuring out what does actually support people's health across the weight spectrum. Once you sort of stop being wedded to the idea that you have to make everybody's weight the same, a whole lot of things open up, all these avenues open up. And, you know, it's been all these years, even decades of work on this, but we still are in a position of knowing a lot less than we should about the actual medical care of higher weight people. And that's terrible. We need medical care. And what we're getting is diets. It's like the industry, I call it the weight cycling industry, because that's the business model, is that <laughs> they're going to they're gonna sell you something that doesn't work. And then when it doesn't work, you're going to come back for more so that you're a perpetual customer. You know, they've got you for life. One of the things, I don't mean to interrupt, but one of the yeah. things that I find interesting in my experience of doing this work and moving into the full bloom project work is that this information is really become quite clear to me as the, the position that I'm in that um, health is not easily correlated with weight or connected or caused by yet it does really seem extremely normal mm-hmm. for most people to make that causation between health and weight and weight equals health. And people don't know that there is weight cycling. They don't know that weight loss, all the research on weight loss and how we don't know much about what actually works or if anything works. So I I would like to spend some time hearing from your all of these years, why does it seem so normal for most people to equate health with weight? And what evidence do you think all people, but parents specifically, should know about weight loss and dieting? I have a little YouTube video called Poodle Science. (laughs) That's like a little two or three minute explainer video, because I thought if I could make one little explainer video about this problem, what would it be? And so I would just describe what I'm saying there, which is that if we imagine a world like as if our world was a world full of dogs, it's as if the poodles are the dominant group. And the poodles really don't get that other dogs are not poodles. (laughs) They think Every other dog is a really small or really tall or really fat or really thin poodle. Mm -hmm. And they think that when they do the science, they think that if you have poodle weight, you'll have poodle health. Mm -hmm. But if you actually, if you starve a mastiff, it's not going to ever become a poodle. Mm -hmm. And the entire intervention of 
prescribing weight loss is based on this weird assumption that a weight suppressed fat person is physiologically the same as a person who's never been fat, which is really silly when you think about it. Like, and we have data that says, oh, no, no, you know, like their physiology is very, very different between somebody who's weight suppressed and somebody who's not weight suppressed. And we also know that almost everybody, when they are going through a period of weight suppression, they're going to regain weight. And we see that as a failure, right? But it's actually our bodies healing. Our bodies are healing themselves from an assault. And that is how we survived, you know, all these millennia, right? So in the poodle science idea, the failure of the weight of the mastiff to, to maintain poodle weight is a failure of self-discipline. You know, the mastiff doesn't have self-discipline and the mastiff believes it too, right? It's like an interlocking sort of block of, of, of assumptions, right? That really are hard to penetrate until you really kind of take a step back and you think, oh, this mastiff would be better off not having gone through that whole horrible process where they feel like they failed, it would be better for that Mastiff to have a place to play and, you know, access to decent food and, and have friends and, you know, all these kinds of things. And that's what, those are the sort of things that open up in your thinking once you're sort of, the, the weight loss thing doesn't block out the sun anymore, I hear that. I love the poodle science. It's a great um, metaphor. We'll be sure to link to oh, it. Oh, yes. We will be sure to link to the video. And I, I can imagine so many people getting it, like once you kind of break it down that way, like really getting that a poodle and a mastiff are different breeds. Like, mm-hmm. and, and yet this becomes such a sticking point, whether it's in practice, like trying to get people to really try on this idea that health and weight are mm-hmm. two different things and that there are poodles and there are mastiffs and you might want to be a poodle, but you're not like you're a bulldog or whatever <laughs> metaphor. Or you a could chihuahua. Just, or a chihuahua. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, and... I guess I wonder, what do you think it is, even just in your own experience? Like, what do you think it is that makes this so hard for people to get and makes it so easy to believe, right, that health and weight are just the same thing? I'll tell you what I think about this. What I think about it is that when you're a member of a stigmatized group, you try to figure out what you can do about it. And... This is why in my work, I'm not as interested in sort of telling somebody who's going on a diet, oh, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. You know, I'm more interested in dismantling the whole intervention of dieting from the top down, because those are the structures that are problematic. The people who are in the stigmatized group, they have a right to figure out how do I deal with this stigma? Mm-hmm. And so to me, that's kind of like, you know, they're, they're going to figure this out for themselves, like what it means. And, and they have a genuine problem, right? They have a genuine problem of, they have the same genuine problem as a lot of other scenarios. Like when you think about what, do, what did queer people do in 1950, 
Like you have a, a horrible culture, you have a bunch of medical interventions that are supposed to transform you into somebody who's heterosexual, you know, <laughs> and you have a lot of stigma. You could be killed. You could lose your job. You could, you know, be rejected by people. You could, you know, be thrown out of your house by your own family, right? So there were a lot of people who sort of looked for a way to not be queer, and there were a lot of families that tried to find ways to help their children not be queer. Mm -hmm. And there still are. But now we're, we've made some progress. You know, we've made some progress with the laws. We've made some progress with people's attitudes. And now the idea that the solution to the problem here is for you to, you know, become a poodle <laughs> when you're not a poodle, that is less of a viable thing. Like that is not necessary to have a, to have a good life, you know? Mm -hmm. And so to me, this is really a, a thorny issue. The health at every size model doesn't fix the existence of actual oppression in the world. It directs our attention to that oppression. And it says, this is a real thing mm -hmm. and we have to change it. You know, we have to change it because it's doing so much harm on the other hand, you're an individual person that has to figure out what you're going to, you know, how you want to live. And what we know about this is that most people are not going to find the answer in changing their body size because it won't be permanent and it will make you feel like you're, you're a terrible person. Mm -hmm. You know, it will sort of, it's sort of diabolically effective at, at sort of making you believe the stereotypes about fat people. And it's also diabolically effective at making your healthcare provider and your family believe in the stereotypes about fat people that, you know, you don't have control over yourself and blah, 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 you know? So it's, it's a terrible thing to go through. You don't have to go through it. That's really what we're trying to kind of offer with the, the health at every size model is to say, we support you not doing this and we stand with you to support you finding other strategies for how to deal with this oppression. But we're not solving the problem just with this one little model. But like, I love what you said about how health at every size doesn't solve the problem, but it does identify the problem. It does mm -hmm. appropriately. And I think about this from a parent's perspective, and it totally makes me want to talk to you about the um, Academy of Eating Disorders uh, article that you wrote about Kerbo. Uh, mm -hmm. the app for children because so many parents and we really we are we strive to not shame parents and create a really open space for parents to recognize sort of where their well-meaning attempts may be mm -hmm. perpetuating problems mm -hmm. but I love what you're saying about health at every size identifying the correct problem because a parent who maybe does gravitate towards the Kerbo app for example Mm -hmm. is maybe just desperate to get their kid feeling better and maybe their kid is experiencing some sort of oppression or stigma mm -hmm. or something incredibly painful. And we talk so much about how parents are really often just trying to do right by their kids. And, and yes. But I, I think that's really one of our goals here, to open up the conversation and, and educate about health at every size so that parents can start to really see okay, if my child does have a problem here, I need to help them reframe what the problem is because it's all too easy for someone to get kind of sucked into this idea like my body's the problem, need to fix my body, and then the problem's solved. Yes, so, yes. Yeah. so that's beautiful. It's a beautiful summation. It's kind of like, 
when people ask me, what are body image issues really? What it, What is this thing about body image? I, I say you have to put it back into this context of the broader social world that people are living in. It's not this weird little psychological event separate from that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, but our, the way we feel about our bodies is very much in the context of, you know, do you blame your body for the meanness of other people? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you're a child, you don't really have a lot of other I, options. Like this is sort of how you, the w- whole world feels to you. Like if something bad is happening, it's because you're bad. Mm-hmm. That is what you can think of. There's not even a lot of adults that get to the point where they kind of go, I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? right. Like this has nothing to do with me, right? This has nothing to do with my worthiness or my lovability or like, like that's hard. It's hard to get to that place. And you have to have a theory and you have to have, you know, an explanation of why is this really happening? Now, I think there are parents who already do this with their kids because they're already members of stigmatized groups in some other way, right? There are parents who totally get this already. And they may not have thought about the weight part as kind of like an intersecting oppression here, right? This notion that you have to help your kids to deal with the crap that's out there in the world is well known, you know, to a lot of parents who have to have, you know, a lot of black parents who have to have the conversation, quote unquote, you know, with their kids about, you know, how to deal with police. Mm -hmm. And they have to, you know, advocate for their kids within the school system that has a zero tolerance policy, which actually kind of refers a bunch of kids of color to the school to prison pipeline, you know, in a way that a lot of white kids are protected from and things like that. So it's important for parents to understand that this is, it's not the same history, of course, you know, and yet it is a way that your child's body and how it's uh, the meaning of your child's body within that broader cultural system how that brings down oppression upon your kid and how are you going to help your child to weather that and be as resilient as they can and have community and have a theory about what's going on and have an effective response that doesn't blame your child, you know, when these things are probably going to happen. Yes, we have so far to go, I think, sometimes. I don't know how you feel about that because you've been working for so long compared to mm-hmm. me in this in this place. So I don't know if you're more optimistic than I am or not. Um, but I, I think, you know, I just I constantly get caught in conversations with various members of my community and around little tiny micro suggestions that you know, well, weight loss is really possible. And I just constantly find myself wanting to be like, what are you talking about? You know, and this is this is where I feel like people just really don't know that we have years and years and years of research continuously pointing us to like, it's not sustainable. It's, it's just not sustainable. It's not meant to be. And mm-hmm. yet years and years of rejection of that evidence. Um, And one of the things that is, I think, got 
Zoe and I and and many people upset about is the new app to teach kids how to mm-hmm. become weight cyclers, as you put it. One of the reasons why I, I wanted to talk with you about what you think parents need to know about this because you wrote an amazing email from my perspective to the Academy of Eating Disorders listserv, which just for listeners, is the Academy of Eating Disorders is an association that many eating disorder professionals belong to that kind of works to put out standards around this um, and positions around the field of eating disorders. And, and this listserv is kind of where we can discuss amongst us um, some items that seem important um, mm-hmm. and get support. And you, you really spoke about the many flaws of this new app to teach kids, mm-hmm. um, you know, how to diet. And you crossed out the word diet and wrote became white cycler customers for life, which you alluded to. But I really am wondering if you want to talk a little bit more about what parents need to know about this. Mm-hmm. That's great. I, I really appreciate the opportunity because I think it's a very seductive and misleading product And it's appalling to me that there are people who are actually from my community of eating disorder specialists who we aren't really sure what the conversations were behind the scenes, you know, how much of a stink people kind of raised about this, but they were on the boards of, you know, approving this product. And I think that's a really chilling thing to notice is that that even among eating disorder specialists, there can be an ethos of the idea that our job is to make people one size, as opposed to the idea that our job is to support the health of people, whatever their size is. And so when you look at the when you look at the app, what they'll say is, oh, we have these experts on on board. And I would say, yeah, that's just about the worst thing ever <laughs> that, they, that they passed this through. And secondly, they'll say, oh, we have this evidence. And when you go and look at the stoplight diet, which is what the app is based on, you know, the only longer term um, evidence that I've been able to find about that particular process, that particular intervention, it's a completely different context from the idea of using it as an app, you know, it's a it's a context where the family is engaged. And even there, over time, people are regaining weight and people are also, it's also very confusing because when kids are growing, very often their their bodies are sort of lurching forward with more weight and then they're sort of getting taller and then they're lurching forward with more weight and then they're getting taller. And so there's just a lot of natural changes in people's BMIs as they are, as they're growing. But the research on that particular intervention, it lacks a control group. And so they basically take credit for any kind of changes that are happening for kids at all. And to me, most of what they're measuring there is the normal variability in those weight outcomes that happen later anyway. So I mean, it's kind of in the weeds to talk about this. But in my opinion, there's still no evidence that these approaches are actually resulting in sustainable weight loss that's different from what that person was going to end up being anyway. And what we do lack information about because those approaches don't measure them, this is a really big problem, 
they don't measure all of the things that I see in my office mm -hmm. five years later, 10 years later, 30 years later, right? The things that I see in my office, because people have gone through those kinds of experiences, are the things that we were talking about before, where people blame themselves for not being able to, to sort of be the weight that people are telling them that they should be. And, you know, honestly, I would love to see every single time someone is going to propose an intentional weight loss intervention, I would love to see them have to give informed consent to the parents and the participants that basically says, I want you to understand almost always you're going to regain the weight that you lose. Almost always. Yes, I've and been I, I've <clears throat> I've said this a couple times on this podcast, but mm -hmm. I I feel that the FDA if a diet was a drug would never approve it because mm -hmm. it statistically has what 5% chance with a potential bunch of side effects and you have to you have to talk about that when you're prescribing medication well, to someone. And there's also this issue that of those 5%, some significant amount of those people are people who have ongoing eating, eating disorders. disorders. Right. Exactly. That, that, the side effects. Those know? are the side effects. And, and so many of them, it's, it's exactly what you're saying. Like these studies aren't measuring that outcome, right? Like because right. so because much of this is internal and it's just the private thoughts and the sort of negative self-talk and mm -hmm. the risky core belief that you are only as worthy as the way you fit in, conform, yeah. or look. And it takes so much for people like to your point later in life to even come forward and find treatment for these issues once they've actually become issues. And this conversation is completely missing from the before and after pictures on the Corona yes. website where yes. these pubescent children, and we talk a lot about puberty and normalizing the, the puberty pudge and just trying to get parents to look at <laughs> their own, you know, fat phobia that might be creeping in when they start to see their kids thickening. And these kids who you would you, I look at the before pictures on, and I say, oh, this is a pubescent child. Like, this is what they should look like. The after picture is like, it's all wrong. And I know that because of the, you know, I'm, I'm also, Leslie and I are both eating disorder professionals as well. Mm -hmm. But what you don't see, because you see this smiling kid that's like got their hip, you know, tilted and their arm, you know, in that little skinny pose or whatever. And what you don't see is the foundation being laid psychologically for just a lot of insecurity down the line. Right. Because like if you really said to somebody, what you're going to experience here is you're going to get closer to the socially approved body size and then you're going to lose it. You're going to lose that privilege again. Mm hmm. And what happens when people do that? Like, you know, what really happens is people start to hide they start to feel like they can't be themselves. They start to feel like they failed. They start to feel like they can't participate in life until they try it again. You know, it's, it's like a recipe for the things that we see that really do harm higher weight people. And when I have people kind of coming to me later, either because they're wherever they are in the weight spectrum, whatever's happening with food, 
you know, one of the things I'm trying to really do is to take the evidence base, which is people need social support, Mm -hmm. you know, like this is a huge part of well-being and sort of understand that if you can connect with other people who are actually trying to resist these oppressions and you can try to change the world, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and you can do this other other process that so many stigmatized groups over the like the last century, you know, like I was, you know, watching this as I was growing up as a kid, I was watching all these different movements that really were kind of teaching me this is the way that you help people with their health, you know, like this is the way that you help them with their well-being. You stop internalizing the bad press about your group and you start finding other people who are kind of like, well, yeah, you're awesome and I must be awesome too if you're awesome, you know, and and you find a way to kind of join together and push back on these things. And it's slow, but over time, It's progress as long as we keep trying. Like when we look at the world now, we see all the slippage that's happening right now. You know, it's kind of sobering because it's like, wow, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot going on right now that's really scary about the gains that people have made in this respect. So I don't think we can ever take it for granted. But I also think when people bring their energy to these issues and they stop thinking that, oh, this is all just an individual problem. I have to solve all by myself over here before I can even go out of my house. When you get all of those people together on all of those ways and all of those strategies, oh boy, do things change. Yeah. And, you know, that's what's hopeful to me. I mean, I can definitely answer your earlier question about that. This is very clearly to me a kind of seesawing kind of process over time. And I guess for me, one of the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful things about my the feeling that I have about my life is that I am inheriting a bunch of work that my ancestors have done, my activist ancestors have done. Maybe not my, probably not my literal biological <laughs> ancestors, <laughs> you know, I've been more proud of the problem probably, but, you know, my activist ancestors have done this work and I'm going to step into this work and I'm going to be the one to carry the ball down the field for some period of time here until I'm gone. But I'm in a river of people who have been trying to make the world a better place, then that feels incredible to me. And it doesn't seem like it's something that's going to happen overnight and it's not going to be done. It's never done. But when you think about what can you devote your life to and what makes you feel like you've actually done something, it doesn't have to be perfect to be better. And that is where I think if you're just sort of budgeting it in for the rest of your life, it helps with the stamina, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Community. It does. I mean, absolutely. I've noticed mm-hmm. that in my own process and profession and that the mm-hmm. more advocacy that I'm noticing and, and taking part in, it really helps me take a much more comfortable, confident position in the place mm-hmm. that I feel is is really truly where we need to go. But we do end up every day, and the people that are listening right now have ev- every day person-to-person challenges that yes. I wanted mm-hmm. to kind of ask you to adapt your process because on your website, Body Positive, which we'll link to, you write that <laughs> Body Positive explores taking up occupancy inside your own skin rather than living above the chin until you're thin. 
In the practice, the focus of body positive is not on weight at all, but rather the decisions you make day to day about how to parent yourself and meet your needs, which I, I love and I can see myself practicing that you know, in my office very regularly with, with every person that comes in. But since we have parents listening and you make reference to parenting yourself, I'm mm-hmm. wondering how you would recommend they parent their children of all ages to be body positive. Well, this goes back to, you know, seeing your sort of stewardship of what your body needs as a kind of loving practice and a kind of opportunity to sort of build trust within yourself. I work with adults. And so this is this is I want to make sure that people I just sort of bow down to parents because I, you know, I'm not a parent and I don't work with kids. So, you know, take all of this through the lens of your own wisdom, which is significantly better than mine about, you know, sort of what needs to happen for kids. But what I can tell you for the adults that I work with who are trying to sort of reparent themselves, right? One of the things that comes up all the time is this feeling of like, even even not even um, food, let's even think about a, a body need, like, you know, I have to pee. They can be working on the computer and kind of not want to stop working in order to take care of what their body needs, you know, right in that moment. And it's probably a pretty familiar feeling to a lot of us that we're sort of like, oh, this body, you know, it's like, it's got all these needs, it's got all these demands, you know, it's sort of the site of a lot of limitations for us, right? You know, when we're in our minds, we're sort of flying around and, you know, in our imaginations, and it's very freeing. Our bodies are where we actually meet reality and the limits of reality. And yet, we are having an experience through our bodies of how kind or unkind the universe is at that moment. So the part of us that needs to pee is really having a tough time getting the attention of the part of us that's on the computer, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And if the part of us that's on the computer can remember that this is an opportunity to build trust with the part of us that needs to pee, because if you experience, uh, I'm raising my hand and I need to pee, and you experience the part of you that's sort of in control of the decision, saying, okay, let's go, you know, and I'm going to go take care of you right now. It creates a universe internally that is kinder. It creates a universe of, okay, you're hungry, let's have something to eat. What are you hungry for? It creates a universe of, instead of feeling like it's a demand that you have to fill, you know, I think what people don't remember you know, in the adult work is that they're, they're the kid too. They're not just the parent, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And so I try to use that as a way to imagine what, you know, the advice should be for the parents because the child is going to experience the world as a place that resp- is responsive or not, you know, to what they need. And if there's some sort of expectation that their bodies shouldn't be hungry or their bodies should have a different experience of something than what their bodies do, like it can mess with that feeling of trust. The outside world is such a source of advice about distrusting those cues rather than trusting them. Like, I don't really see a lot of parenting sources that say, 
from the very beginning, you know, when your kid is sort of learning how to do any of these things in a human body, you know, like wherever we were before, wherever we were going after, you know, when we die, right now, our whole thing is like figuring out life in a human body, right? And so little kids are figuring out life in a human body. And, and so the, the magic of that, understanding how you take an internal experience and translate that into wisdom about what you're going to do next, right, out in the world. That's a huge, gorgeous project. And so much of the time, as parents, I think we're being asked to norm our kids, right, and kind of say, this is a this is a right thing to experience. And this is a wrong thing to experience, as opposed to having a project of sort of saying, whatever you're experiencing, let's see if you can put that into some kind of way that I can understand it and help you with it. And also like whatever, whatever your body is, I mean, it just feels so connected to what you're saying, right? Like, yes, that let's take it face value that whatever your body is, however tall it is, however wide it is, however taut it is, however soft it is, that this is all fine that this is all just what it's supposed to be. And it's hard, of course, because of the culture we live in. But the more we can normalize, like, the poodle (laughs) metaphor, um, (laughs) I think the better because, right, how can you promote trust if there's this idea of something is right and something is wrong in terms of, like, what what your body is supposed to do or be? Right. So when I was first writing that, you know, quote that you that you mentioned from the Body Positive website, which is, by the way, ancient, and (laughs) I just want to acknowledge it's like a 20 year old thing. But what I wanted to, to sort of say about that is that, you know, the idea that you that there's wisdom in living below your chin, there's a bunch of power and wisdom that comes from our experiences of life as embodied creatures. And you can help your children pick up on those things, and they become a source of well-being and decision-making and strategizing about how to get around in the world as they grow. Like if you think about parenting your child so that there's a way that they recognize a weird feeling in their stomach when there's somebody around that is really not trustworthy there's a weird feeling like there's something wrong. You've actually helped that child to amplify the signal from their body that something's wrong, you know, that, that there's an intuition that they can pay attention to. And trust. Like that's a very, yes, that's a very valuable thing. Then they're a teenager and, you know, their kids are piling into the, into the car after drinking and that very same kind of signal is sent up in their bodies. Like I shouldn't get in this car, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. like no one should get in this car, (laughs) you know, you know, if you don't have those signals, you, you've just eliminated a huge part of, you know, the emergency response system. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's kind of like, how do you preserve that kind of, set of signals for your child? And how do you give your child a whole bunch of strategies for what do you do in these different situations? And also, how do you keep your eye on that bigger picture of things in the world that your child is not going to be able to solve all by themselves, right? 
So it's, it's kind of this very nuanced kind of place where you don't think that everything is solvable by your child, but you're not, you're also not eliminating a bunch of solutions that your child might have access to if they were really in touch with their bodies. Yeah. Oh, we could uh, continue on and on with you, but we uh, <laughs> are respectful of your time and also our listeners who are, a lot of them are busy parents on the run. Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so we do like to close with this question, which is if each parent listening to this podcast took away and did one thing on the regular, one specific thing, what's the one thing you would recommend they do to help their children fully bloom? Well, it's going to be a bit of a hybrid answer, I think, because in the context of that, what we were just talking about, when your child has an opportunity to use their body as part of their wisdom, take it, take it and amplify it, and also connect it to this larger awareness of the outside world and the ways that this stuff in the outside world needs to change, right? And that that's not on your child. You know, that's not something that your child is going to have to, is going to do by themselves, but that people working together can change those things. And so for the parents, it's partly recognizing those opportunities when they come up for their children, but it's also recognizing as a parent, what can I see in my world today that I can do something about in this outside world so that it's a better world for my kids. Yeah, so I appreciate the hybrid because it's paying attention both to the inside, the interior world mm -hmm. of your child and respecting it and trusting it, amplifying it, and also separately paying attention to the outside world and recognizing that there are a lot of problems in it. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's sort of instilling a little activism in all of us, parents and kids <laughs> alike, maybe. Maybe you planted a seed. Yes. And even, yeah. I think, just for our listeners listening to the this podcast is a community. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we try to be there for you and introduce you to all these other communities through interviewing people and giving you a, a stronger sense that it's, it's okay to separate health from weight. Mm -hmm. uh, it's okay. You're going to be okay. But you may feel oppressed and we want to, you know, support you in a different way than just suggesting that you lose weight or try to manipulate your, your food. Mm -hmm. So thank mm -hmm. you so much for your time. We um, really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been so good. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And thank you to all the parents out there. Again, I just bow down to you because <laughs> I think it's one of the the most important and hardest things that anybody can do. So rock on. <laughs> <laughs> so that's our show. We would love to hear any reactions or questions that came up for you during this episode. So please send us an email at info at fullbloomproject.com. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way for more people to find the podcast. And please consider becoming a patron of our podcast and visiting fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon. 
so that we can keep producing and delivering this content to you. Thank you all for listening and remember to tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom.